Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from the KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but a photographer of over 30 years. And if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you could say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This radio program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill, shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. This book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me, by Harvest House Publishers. Each week we read one of the essays and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's essay is Let the Hammer Ring by Ed Hinson, who is the Dean of the School of Divinity and Distinguished Professor of Religion at Liberty University in Virginia. And he's the speaker on The King is Coming telecast and author and general editor of 40 books. He holds a DMIN from Westminster Theological Seminary and a PhD from the University of South Africa. Speaking of South Africa, my family lineage comes through that nation. According to what I was told, my great-grandfather, John Ingham, was a big band leader in Great Britain in the early 1900s. The way I heard it, John Ingham was very well known as the leader of the up-and-coming big band genre. The British newspapers wrote about him as he was leaving for his first mission trip reporting Ingham's heeding the call to become a missionary. His mission was to the mine workers of the Transvaal region. At some point on the mission field, John Ingham hooked up with John G. Lake, who was famously known as the Apostle to Africa. I have several books in my library about John G. Lake, where my great-grandfather is mentioned several times. It touches on how they worked together on massive crusades around that southern African region. To say they were like Billy Graham's crusades would be a type of a misnomer, as Billy Graham's crusades seemed to be a continuation of the massive type that John G. Lake held across Africa. These crusades harvested countless souls for the kingdom. Moreover, the stories are replete with testimonies of miraculous divine appointments and breakthroughs of government, and other religious opposition, other denominations. While serving in the Transvaal, he married an American nurse, had four kids on the mission field. The youngest, my grandfather, was two years old when John Ingham died from the pandemic known as the Great Spanish Influenza. So in 1918, my great-grandma took the kids back home to Pennsylvania. My grandfather was a dual British Afrikaner citizen until he became a U.S. citizen at 21. Lord willing, I can fulfill a bucket list to make a photographic visit to the Transvaal and a spiritual visit as well to the churches in the region. 
churches that still may be ripples from the crusade events him and John Ingham worked on together. So with that, let's start the essay, Let the Hammer Ring, by Head Hinson. Crucifixion was a dirty business, and the Romans were experts at it. They did it all the time. It was their way of keeping the general public in submission. Still, it wasn't for everybody. They reserved this most cruel punishment only for slaves and foreigners. Roman citizens were exempt. Dying on a cross was the worst thing that could happen to a Jew because such a punishment was associated with the curse of God. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23. It was the ultimate humiliation. You were stripped of your clothes, battered by soldiers, nailed to the crossbars, and hung naked, suspended between heaven and earth. It was a spectacle of blood, sweat, and tears. The steady crack of the hammers could be heard above the screams of victims and the cries of their relatives. Each blow increased the pain. Each strike of the hammers told the condemned that there was no hope of release. But as the hammers rang out against the rocky cliff, one steady voice could be heard above the clamor and pain. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. Even in this awful moment, Jesus would rise above it all. Here at the place of the skull, we see no squirming. We do not see a squealing victim. No, not an angry man, not a cursing man. We see the Savior in all his greatness, goodness, and compassion. We see him forgiving his unsuspecting executioners. Let the hammer ring, for in their ugly sound we hear the grace of God above it all from the very throne of God through the canyon of eternity comes the word of hope for all mankind. Grace. That ends the essay. Let the Hammer Ring by Ed Henson, and included in the book, What the Cross Means to Me. There is a poem preceding this essay by George A. Butterick, which says, If God were good, says the world, the sin of the earth would break his heart. To which the preacher answers, pointing to the cross, See his breaking heart? There are many who believe that this is precisely why Jesus died way earlier than the Roman centurions expected him. Some believe the combination of having all the evil and vile sins placed within him, and thus his father, who could not dwell with sin, abandoning him, was simply too much for his pure heart to endure. And this will be the theme of today's devotional. Now the photo accompanying this essay is The Redemption an image from the early days of capturing the cross collection, back when the entire hillside was covered with grass, or some might say hay. The landscape imparts the feeling of a late summer afternoon. There is a sea of grass about three feet high, with the calming amber-yellow hue you see in late summer. And on the left side, there is a faint trail going around in the back side of the cross. Why the title, The Redemption? Well, in John 10, 14, and 15, it says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Meaning, 
Redemption refers to the work of Christ on our behalf, in that he paid the debt, or from another perspective, ransomed us at the price of his own life, securing our deliverance from the bondage and condemnation of sin. As an old hymn goes, he paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. The New Testament speaks of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. In this image, the setting sun is breaking through the clearing storm clouds, and to me there is a daily opportunity with the passing of each day, with the passing of each sunset, to have our sins cleansed and to be redeemed today. The scripture I chose for this image is Colossians 1, 13, and 14, which says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his Son he loves, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Now getting into the essay, I have to say that I did not set out to shoot a cross. I found the cross of this collection about a week to the year after losing my wife to cancer. I had up to that to the point of her death put my camera on the shelf, at least in terms of artistic applications, and up to that point I had been shooting about 10 years, but my wife and I started focusing on a side business in a roundabout way to be able to do photography full-time. The goal was to become successful enough to leave our day jobs and shoot whatever I wanted, which even back then was nature and inspirational imagery, instead of product photography, portraits, and weddings. And we were on our way, meaning she had retired from her day job. She was making so much that she resigned, and she was given a nice party by her bosses. She was able to say goodbye in a retirement party of sorts, all of which her co-workers knew because she told them often that her next step was to allow me to focus on photography full-time as well. That was on May 10th. Thirteen days later, she was gone. God had come for her hand to take her home early. I was there, holding her hand when she flatlined, and I tangibly felt God's hand take hers from mine. That spiritual, unexplainable experience afforded me a stoic peace in the midst of the storm. After the activities of the funeral and other related transition activities, I let the business aspect simply fade away. I resolved to do a day job duties, but took the camera off the shelf every night, and I fell into the routine of chasing and sitting and soaking in every sunset I could. I felt like it was the closest I can get to heaven on this earth. St. Benedict believed that humans have the ability to tap into eternity, and there was times at certain sunsets where I became lost in some sort of wrinkle in the fabric of time and space. Words cannot adequately explain what I felt and saw with my third eye, especially as it is personal for me. But suffice it to say, it amplified my desires to find another sunset, and then the next night, and the night after that, and then the next. I fell into a chasing sunset phase of my life, and it was in this mode of living and shooting looking for new places to shoot from, that I discovered a new hill. On it, I found that 12-foot-high white wooden cross. And after several visits, I had flashes of the ethereal tinge of eternity while at the cross. Then the die was cast. I found that this site became my secret place, my hiding place, to spend time pondering my new life and communicating with God. And yes, at the same time, a way to fulfill my artistic obsession was shooting that same cross as many ways as I could. Once in a while, the two merged, resulting in some of my most majestic images of the cross. Like many aspects of our lives, we, in hindsight, 
referred to something like that as a God thing, meaning the cross collection was a natural evolution of my life at that time and a place that God drew me to, which means that God wanted me to create the collection over these two years without concern about how some might interpret the art that God inspired me to create. And when the school was completed and they moved the cross, I desired to share my collection, and I did so through a 20-piece, 8 by 10 gallery show. And someone very well connected in the industry who visited one of my shows asked what I had planned to do with the collection. I said, to make a larger format gallery show. And he said, no, you have a book here. (laughs) He then contacted the publisher, Harvest House Publishers, on my behalf, and the book was published in spite of me. Another God thing. Which is good because then I can't really take credit and much easier for me to say glory to God when I get praise for my art or for the book, both of which to me was willed by God to have come into existence. So when someone critiques my work as overbeautifying a symbol of one of the most violent, bloody, and agonizing way to be killed, I take peace knowing that God used me as a conduit to create something that can, non-verbally, but effectively preach the good news of the redemption Jesus Christ offers. There's another essay in the book which has a line that says, The cross is beautiful and precious because it stands for the shame and scandal that Christ suffered for our salvation. And this essay causes us to look, to really ponder what Jesus went through to become our Savior. A series of events, when viewed comprehensively, leads me to believe that Jesus died a death worse or more painful, more inhumane, more unbearable than 99.999% of the human race. As we come to understand in this episode, my comment is not hyperbole. Even if you do not believe in the divine nature of Jesus Christ, and if you are honest, you will have to agree that the man known as Jesus of Nazareth died a death more horrific than most other humans ever have. I agree, someone can pull up stories of a terrible death here or there, but if you find references that were at or worse the death of Jesus, still is a minuscule percentage of the tens of billions that have ever lived. With that premise, let's dig into it. The first thing that really jumped out to me was not the obviousness of how gruesome, violent, and disfiguring the process of a crucifixion was, but the cultural and societal shame it brought not only to the one being executed, but the widespread stigma to all his family and friends. Those known to be associated with the defendant were socially shunned, almost like dropping down a peg or two in the Hebrew version of a caste system ruled by the ruling priest class. But that new knowledge did not impact me as much as when they taught us that the crucified were perceived as being cursed by God. Wow, cursed? I have to take a step back for this epiphany, and I'm struck by two seemingly hidden heavenly truths here in both directions, from the Garden of Eden and up to the rapture. So let's see if I got this. God had to curse and break the right relationship with his beloved only son to restore the right relationship with mankind. Yes, and it's why Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. God had to, because of the sins of Adam and Eve, break his right relationship with them Cursing them, toiling and sweating over the fields for food for the man, Adam. And the woman, Eve, there was to be the pain of childbearing as well as enmity with the serpent. Then he exiled them from the Garden of Eden. 
But now to reverse this status, God the Father had to curse and exile Jesus, who was sinless, innocent, and holy, giving up Jesus to the worst execution by the Romans that could be inflicted on someone. And some might say that all we will learn about in this devotional episode, about the physical aspects of the torturous process of a crucifixion, was nothing compared to the utter horror, agony, and anguish of having all the sins of man across the span of history and into the future until the rapture, all of the most vile, disgusting, foul, nasty, unpleasant, horrid, dreadful, abominable, offensive, odious, unsavory, repulsive, repelling, wicked, evil, heinous, villainous, diabolical, fiendish, vicious, murderous, barbaric, cruel, dark, rotten, nefarious, monstrous, spiteful, and hurtful actions ever committed was placed on and in Jesus. It is simply unimaginable. But it makes sense now in the light of this new paradigm. Maybe it was not just the cultural and societal belief that the crucified were cursed of God, but an actual plan, an actual part of the actual plan. As I just mentioned, the Bible tells us that God cannot dwell with sin. God is holy and cannot cohabitate with sin. So God had to decouple from his son to allow all the sins of the world to dwell with Jesus. We know this to be the case when it is reported that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow. So even those people who feel God has abandoned them, and I've met a few who feel that way, Jesus can say that he knows what it feels like because it actually happened to him. And more than any human, because Jesus, the Son, was close to God, the Father, more than any other human that ever lived from the beginning of creation, meaning the absolute anguish of being abandoned and then having the sin of the world placed in him, is unimaginable and uncomprehendable. But let's continue with the essay. They are, Ed is right, it is a messy way and a shameful way to die. That is why Isaac Watts, in one of his hymns, At the Cross, asked why. Why did the Savior have to die like this? This method of capital punishment reserved only for the worst type. And in the first century Hebrew culture, it was a stigma not only for the condemned, but was a stigma for the entire friend, all their business associates, everybody was stigmatized who were associated with the defendant. And everyone who was part of that person's life, the only comparable stigma I can think of in America might be treason. But this perspective provides why the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, would accept nothing less than crucifixion. Pilate, and then later Herod, and Pilate again, offered many alternatives to crucifixion. And I've often wondered why the Jewish leaders would not be able to negotiate this point with the governing force that occupied their land. The religious leaders wanted the followers of Christ, the whole movement, shut down. The disciples, who had the ability to share the message of Christ, had to be eliminated. The leaders knew that if the leader, Jesus, was completely stigmatized, then no one would want to be associated with them. It did not have to go all the way to a full crucifixion, but it did. And on a side note, if Israel were not occupied by the Romans during the life of Christ, then Jesus could not have been crucified. And yet, it was a death prophesied by several Old Testament prophets. As Caiaphas told Pilate, our law forbids capital punishment. 
when Pilate had asked why they just don't deal with Jesus in their own way. There were many ways they could have dealt with Jesus, but this was as much political as it was a commercial motivation. As the followers of Christ were growing, being baptized, less people were needing the priest. Under the law, individuals and families were had to purchase a sacrifice. It could be a lamb or a pair of doves. And those purchases were diminishing. And the priest not only made a lot of money in this system, but they had an endless supply of free food from the excess sacrifices. And the followers of Jesus kept growing. And the arrival of Jesus in what we call Palm Sunday, in which the Bible says the entire city turned out to cheer and praise Jesus. And this was entering a final straw phase for the Pharisees. They not only wanted Jesus gone, but they wanted a stigma associated with Jesus, such that anyone following the teaching or theology of Jesus would also be stigmatized across society and their culture. Until I read this essay, I had not really thought through all of this aspect of why the religious leaders would accept nothing less than a crucifixion and a political assassination of the character of Jesus. But King Solomon Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. We see in John 15, 18-20, that Jesus said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. All that considered, Paul, who used to carry out more than just the character assassination of Christians, but would actually kill them, gives us a heavenly perspective after his conversion. We read in Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the Lord has been crucified to me and I the world. In other words, don't run from the tsunami stigma that the world assigns to us, but duck dive right into it. It is all we have, and we should be proud that the thing that society uses to impugn us is the very essence of our faith. In our faith tradition, it represents how our divine entity with Father God from before the creation of this world lowered himself to be the lowest of lows, physically, spiritually, and culturally, become the only legitimate sacrifice for all the sins of all mankind. And as we've focused on that last few episodes, Jesus went even lower in the afterlife to the realm of Lucifer, but emerging victorious with the keys to death, hell, and the grave. My point here is that this is the most torturously, horrifyingly, and violent way for a person to be killed. I know Christians who could not watch certain scenes leading up to the crucifixion process portrayed in the Passion of the Christ movie. But first we see disrespect and shame as the religious leaders slap and beat him in the face and spit in his face. We see a mix of violence as they strip him naked and place a scarlet robe mocking his divinity and flog him with a whip that had lead and metal braided into the tips. Then they took a rod, a stick, and took turns striking him in the head while spitting on him, the latter being considered a source of deep shame, not just to be spit on, but to be spit on by a Gentile. Then they twisted the crown of thorns and forced it on and into his scalp while kneeling and mocking him as the king of the Jews. Then they took turns spitting and striking him again, over and over and over again, Then they forced him to carry his own cross on the long route from the Praetorian to the hill of Golgotha, known as the Skull, along the Via Della Rosa. And some estimate that this type of cross could have weighed between 100 to 200 pounds. And him having to pull this weight in his condition 
and having the wounds on and around his shoulders as well, I just can't imagine. Fortunately, Simon of Cyrene took it up the rest of the way. But when they arrived, they outstretched his wounded arms, drove a huge nail the size of railroad track stakes into the section of his wrist, the bottom of the arm, in between those two bones, careful not to puncture the main bloodline. They also put a stake in his ankle area. And they lifted the cross into position, and the slow process of suffocation began. As I mentioned, this execution was engineered to take a very long time. At one point, the soldiers were ordered to break the legs of the three being crucified, but they noticed that Jesus was already dead, and this perplexed the soldiers. So just to be sure, they pierced his side, and it was reported that a mix of blood and water flowed out. But why? Why did Jesus die so early? Well, I went into detail earlier in this devotional. Since all of the most disgusting, repulsive, cruel, and hurtful actions were placed in him, his perfect, innocent, and holy heart broke. But I think this is more about the shame of the cross than the violence of the physical, but I truly appreciate what God the Father willed and what Jesus the Son allowed. Remember, the whole plan of salvation was for Jesus to live as one of us, experience the plight, hunger, tiredness, pain, grief of loss, and temptations we face. And in the crucifixion, we see that it might be impossible for any one person to say that they had anything more painful happen to them than what Jesus experienced. And when Jesus took all the sins of the world onto himself, then nobody can really say that nobody understands what they're going through, or maybe that God abandoned them. Jesus knows intimately this absolute hopelessness because it happened to him. And if you are still alive and hearing this devotional, then you have not been truly abandoned by God, even if it feels like it at times to you. It means that there's nothing you have gone through or will go through that Jesus has not already gone through for you. And through all Jesus went through, the point I took from today's essay is that Jesus kept a meaningful, purposeful, and resolved demeanor to go through all that pain and agony and still have the cognitive and empathetic attention on the eternal souls of those involved in killing him. It wasn't that I knew that Jesus was also 100% divine. I mean, if I didn't know that, it would be simply unbelievable that a man in the situation Jesus was in would not be concerned about his own pain and suffering, but would be so concerned about forgiving and the eternal resting home of his executioners. And as Ed said, Jesus did it all to offer you grace. Now, if you are a Christian, have you been living in this perspective of grace? If not, I suggest you meditate on the paradigm of the cross. Why? Because it removes all possible fear doubt, and insecurity in our lives. It allows you to choose God's will without overthinking it, knowing that the truth of the gospel is that the worst-case scenario of any situation is the best-case outcome for us, God's children. Go and live in that perspective today. And if you have not accepted the incredible sacrifice made for you by Jesus, then I suggest you contemplate what Jesus did for you. Read the crucifixion accounts in the Bible or possibly watch movies like The Passion of the Christ. Because if you do, I am convinced that you will thank him for his sacrifice, asking Jesus to forgive you of those sins that you unknowingly placed on him, and asking him to dwell inside the cleaned out and healed portion of your heart 
today. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. Heard every week here on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed, like this essay's image, The Redemption, along with my other versepirations, then check out Magi Cross on Instagram. And if your church, youth group, or school would like to learn how to fundraise through the Magi Cross products, hear other Cross podcasts, or read further meditative musings on the cross through my blog, then log on to magicross.com. That is M-A-J-I-C-R-O-S-S dot com.